The beginning of a new year always brings about the idea of starting over. We have a new week and a new month. Those are always coming at us. But when we get to a new year, for many, it becomes a unique opportunity. And so as we think about the new year, we think about a prayer for our lives for the new year, Colossians chapter 1 is a great place for us to look at that. Now, it's not uncommon for people to make New Year's resolutions, right? Some have been thinking about it for a few days. Some have been trying to nail them down even now. I've got a few New Year's resolutions for you that are very, very attainable because oftentimes the resolutions we set for ourselves just aren't quite that attainable. So here's some that we can all aspire to in 2019. This year, I resolve to gain some weight, at least 20 pounds. I'm going to resolve to stop exercising. I don't like getting all sweaty and it really makes my body hurt. I'm going to read less and watch more TV. You know, reading makes you think and TV is just so enjoyable. I'm going to procrastinate more. I'm going to start that tomorrow. I'm going to get more toys. I'm going to get further into debt. And I'm going to stop believing politicians. Those are my New Year's resolutions that are attainable for me this year. That's kind of silly, isn't it? But with the new year, we really do have an opportunity to rethink what this past year has been like. To think about the spiritual goals that we are going to set for ourselves in the coming year. It's not uncommon for people to set physical goals it seems to be a lot less common for people to set spiritual goals for their lives. Thinking back on what your walk with Christ was like last year, thinking about what you want your walk with Christ to be like next year, should direct us in setting some spiritual resolutions for this upcoming year. Let's read together in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. I want you to think about this in the perspective of this being our prayer for this coming year. Paul says in verse 9, For this reason also, and that is the commendation that he had just given to them, their faithfulness, which is being known all throughout the region, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that faith, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, two major sections here. The first one is going to be the request. The request that Paul makes is really centered around one primary topic, and that would be that we would know God's will. That we would simply know God's will. Verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we've heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with all, excuse me, filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now there's two key words for us to look at here, and that is this, filled. Filled means to be filled to completeness. It means to be controlled by. Now when you see a woman who is pregnant and is about to give birth, right? She is filled to completeness. I've seen some ladies that I thought wouldn't make it to the hospital because of how extended their stomachs were because of the baby or the babies inside of them. And when you look at a pregnant woman like that, you say, my goodness, 
there can't be anything any bigger in her than what's, going to be, what's about to come out. It's as big as it can possibly be. And that's the idea that we be filled to completeness, that we would be dominated by and controlled by the will of God. Second key word here is the word knowledge. And that means a full and deep understanding. It is a knowledge which grasps and penetrates deep into the object. So if you and I are the object, then knowledge of His will, a full and deep understanding, is to penetrate deep into our lives in such a way that it permeates everything that we do and all that we think about. Our thoughts, our affections, our priorities, our purposes, our plans, and most especially the goals that we would set for ourselves on the beginning of a new year. It shouldn't be a surprise for you to recognize and for me to realize that there is always going to be a competing interest for our affections and for those things that we are going to commit our lives to. You have the Word of God and what it says to us, and you have what the culture says that our lives to be are to be all about. You have a biblical worldview that sets God as the goal and God's truth as our framework, and then you have worldly philosophy that would tell you that your life is about you. You deserve a break today. Go to Burger King and get the hamburger of your choice. Isn't that right? Madison Avenue has made their billions of dollars convincing us that we need what they're marketing. And that's a part of this worldly culture that we live in. It isn't what God says. It isn't what God wants. It is what the culture says. It is this worldly philosophy that seems to dictate and direct our lives in such a way. So as we think about knowledge of God's will, as we think about it, what it means to be filled with completeness and a full, deep understanding of what that will is, I'm reminded of this. The Bible tells us a couple things about God's will. The Bible tells us of His general will. It isn't difficult to read through our Bibles and see the general will of God, that man is fallen, that he needs redemption, and it's God's desire that we would come to repentance, that we would know Him, and that we would live our lives according to Him. So when we think about the basic commands of Scripture, they're centered around our relationship with Him. Not religion. Not mindless service. Not a duty or an obligation. But a relationship that is wrapped in great privilege that the God of this world has reached down into this world that we live in and allowed us to know Him as our Lord and our Savior. He communicates His general will to us through His Word. Don't depend upon a dream. Don't depend upon a vision. Don't depend upon a counselor. Don't depend upon a sermon or a Bible study. Or your favorite author. Go straight to the source. Read the Word. Pray about what you're reading. Submit yourself to the truth of what you're reading. And make a sacred commitment to the best of your ability to live out whatever God is telling you to do through His Word. You see, God's will for our lives is going to be rooted in His general will, and that is centered in our relationship with Him. And then secondly, our obedience to Him. I have met many, many Christians in my life who are proud of the fact that they know all these dates and all these names and all these places, all these different people, all these different sequence of events. 
Yet they seem to be content in living a life of moderate obedience to what God's word tells us to do. You see, our relationship isn't to be defined by academic or intellectual knowledge. It's defined by what God tells us and what we're willing to do based upon what God has just told us to do. We are, as his children, saved by his grace, journeying towards eternity with him. We are to follow him. We are to imitate him. We are to do what he says. We are to live how he tells us to live. We're to love like he loves. We're to forgive like he forgives. We're to sacrifice like he has sacrificed, etc., etc., etc. You know, if we find ourselves reading the Bible and hearing ourselves say something like, well, you know, so-and-so really would benefit from hearing that. Oh, I can't wait to tell so-and-so about this thing. That'll shoot them down, right? You see, the Word of God is to come into our lives in such a way that we recognize that it is active and living and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it is the means by which God desires to bring sanctification or holiness into our life. It is a living and breathing thing that we have in our hands that we can take everywhere we go and it is God's chosen method of how He desires to speak to you and to I. When He speaks, we are to listen, we are to follow, and we are to make every effort to obey what God tells us to do. So the Bible tells us of His general will, but you and I get distracted by His specific will. Yeah, I know you want me to spend time in the Word. I know you want me to pray more. I know you want me to serve more. I know you want me to sacrifice more. I know you want me to love more. But I want to know who do you want me to marry, God. I want to know what job I should take. I want to know if this is the right house for me. We get so bogged down in the minutia of detail when it comes to the will of God that we completely ignore the central foundation of that will. And that is to know Him and to love Him, and to willingly and faithfully serve Him. The search for God's will shouldn't be about those details, although they can be very, very important. But I can tell you this. If our heart is truly set on observing and following and seeking the general will of God, the details of God's will for our lives will not be an issue. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Do you believe that's true? But see, delighting yourself in the Lord means you're going to spend time in His Word. You're going to spend time on your knees. You're going to pray a prayer of commitment based upon what you have read in the Word and what you hear God saying back to you through the Word and what you're committing in your time of prayer with Him. So here's the key for me. Letter C is the specific comes out of obedience to the general. The specific will that God has for our lives about whom we should marry, what school we should go to, and what should our vocation be, and should we have kids now, and all those kinds of things, that is always going to come out of obedience to the general will of God, to prioritize time in His Word, talking to Him in prayer, committing to serve Him, and imitating Him as much as feasibly possible. So we are to be filled up to completeness. We're to be controlled by this knowledge of God that enables us to understand more fully what is the will of God. And so in our passage of Scripture, we see how we can gain this knowledge 
that we're supposed to have of the Lord. It says, in all spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is doing what is right. The flip side of that, and these are really somewhat synonymous, and that is spiritual understanding, and it is knowing what is right. You know, you can't do the right thing if you don't know what the right thing is. Right? How can you expect your children to observe the rules of your household if they don't know what they are? They can't do it, can they? So how are you and I going to be filled with spiritual wisdom doing the right thing if we don't know what the right thing is? This is why it's important that God's Word saturates our minds in such a way that it brings about the transformation that it communicates to us exactly what it is we are to do. We're seeking the principle in the truth of God's Word so that we will know what the right thing is to do. You've heard of counterfeiting before, right? People that make currency and they pass it off as legitimate. And that happens all around our world still today. Even in America, there are still people who are counterfeiting money and with some success on that. If you are to be trained as one who is able to discover the counterfeit, you know what they want you to do? They don't want you to study every example of counterfeit currency that's ever been passed. They want you to know the real McCoy. You learn the counterfeit by knowing what real currency is like. And when you've giving yourself to it, and it's saturated your mind and your understanding. You can pick up a piece of currency without a lot of difficulty say, this isn't real, I can tell. How do I know it's not real? Because I know what the real thing is. It's a tragedy in the church in America today that Christians who profess to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, people who say, I am of the book, I believe it's infallible and it's inerrant, and it's, inerrant, and it's my guide for life, it's a tragedy that people who say these things can be let off into counterfeit religious expressions under the guise of Christianity and be followers of a cult. It's, it's terrible. Why does that happen? Because we don't know the truth. In order to have spiritual understanding, we have to know what is right. And in order to have spiritual wisdom, we have to do what is right. Reading God's Word isn't about memorizing certain things. It's about how can I follow the Lord? How can I serve the Lord? How can I do what He wants me to do? And this is what we have to do. We have to give ourselves to the truth of what God's Word says. So that's the prayer that Paul makes. This is the prayer that you and I ought to make. That we would know the will of God. That we would be filled up to completeness and all spiritual wisdom and understanding of what His will for us is. Now, there's a result that goes along with that. Number two, the result of a full knowledge of His will, the expression of this knowledge flowing from our lives is very simply going to be a worthy life. Now, we need to, we need to describe that word a little bit more because make no mistake about it, you and I are not worthy of God's love and grace and forgiveness. We're not deserving of it. There's not anything that we could do that ever make us worthy. So we don't think of worthy in that way. But here's what verse 10 says. He's prayed this prayer, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. That word, that word worthy means equal weight. 
You envision a teeter-totter, a seesaw, and you've got somebody on the other side that outweighs you by a couple of hundred pounds, and it's incredibly imbalanced, right? There's not anything that you could do that would ever balance that out until somebody changed positions on the other side of that seesaw. Well, the idea here is, is that you and I are to live a life that equals the weight of what God has done for us and the kind of life that we live as a result of that. This worthiness is not living worthy to God's holiness and God's standard and God's attributes. That's not what the comparison is. The comparison is how are we living our lives in light of what God has done for us and in light of what it is that we profess about ourselves. So to live worthy is to try to equal the weight as much as we can, to live a life that is appropriate with what the Lord has done for us and desires to do in us as he continues the work that he began on the day of our salvation. Colossians 2, 6, a little bit later in this book, says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That word walk means the daily conduct of our lives. We are to walk with Him. We receive Him with great enthusiasm, don't we? Some of us have been saved from a life of incredible sin. We could never imagine that a holy and a righteous God could love something as unlovable and as wicked as you and I might have been. So we begin with a great amount of brokenness, with a great degree of enthusiasm to love Him and serve Him and follow Him to live dependently, to surrender everything to Him. But then over time, something happens. It just, it just loses its enthusiasm. That's the normal flow for most Christians. And what we have to do is continually focus on what God has done for us and never ever lose sight of that. So that becomes a motivator for us to live our lives in light of who He is and what He has done to please Him in every respect. That to me means to anticipate and obey his desires. You remember the little bracelets that were popular years ago? What would Jesus do? WWJD. You heard it all the time. You saw it everywhere. That's a great way to express this idea of trying to anticipate what would God want me to do in light of this circumstance, this problem, or this purpose. Well, what we do has to be driven by the truth of His Word. Otherwise, it's going to be from ourselves. It might be something we've seen in the culture. It might be something a friend is encouraging us to do. But we are to anticipate what we believe God would have us do in the situation we're in and then obey the truth that is applicable from God's Word about the situation that we find ourselves in. I believe that most of us struggle with, a, with this conflict between pleasing Him and pleasing ourselves. Don't you think about that? Is that a conflict for you? Is there a struggle in living a life that is completely sold out to Him, and a life that wavers between doing what I think, what I like, what I prefer, what's convenient for me? Yeah, we do. If we don't acknowledge that, I would suggest you start praying a little bit more. Because you and I are ruled by our sinful, selfish nature apart from the transforming work that is taking place in our lives by God's Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we live a life of obedience to Him.
So in regard to pleasing him, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. In regard to pleasing yourself, Paul would say, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In regard to pleasing others, Galatians 1.10, for, now I am, for, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Do you see the, the contrast there? If we are set on living a life for ourselves, to ourselves, if we're trying to live a life where others approve of who we are and what we're doing, the contrast is we will not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We will be a convenient servant of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul will use four examples here of what this worthy life looks like. The first one is this, that we would live a life that is bearing fruit. Verse 10, part of verse 10 says, bearing fruit in every good work. It is an expectation that God's children will bear fruit. Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. There is this expectation that you and I as God's children bear fruit for the kingdom of God. This verse that we see here in John 15, we're going to look at way down the road. But this is in the final day of Jesus' life with His disciples and teaching them the last things they're going to hear Him say this side of His crucifixion. And He says as a part of this great priestly prayer and this last teaching that the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So there's several kinds of fruit that the Bible shares with this letter A, there's the fruit of character. It defines who I am. The fruit of character describes who I am. Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, making us completely different from the person we were apart from Christ. To have these kinds of virtues evident in our life is proof that the Lord is at work and it is fruit that is being born from our lives as He is making us who and what He wants us to be. Letter B, there's the fruit of conduct. There's what I do. Not only who I am, but also what I do. Philippians 1, 10 and 11, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, there was a period in Christian history where it was very admirable to become a monk. A monk would withdraw from society. They would spend all their times in the confines of the monastery and they would read and they would study and they would pray and they would become great men of God, but they never did anything outside the walls of that monastery that made a difference in anybody else's life unless they wrote. You see, the transforming work of Christ in our lives is to have a fruit-bearing aspect in the lost world around us. They are to see that we are different. 
What we do indicates that we are different. It's not just an empty profession, but it is an actual driving force in our lives. Let us see. There's the fruit of communication. And this is what I say. You know, the same lips that can praise God can curse man and tear him down faster than a bolt of lightning. Hebrews 13, 15, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. We could spend some time in the book of James, couldn't we, talking about the tongue It is a fire. It's an unquenchable fire. We often wish we could take back words as fast as they're coming out of our mouths and we just can't do it. Our lips are to praise Him. There is a fruit in what we say to one another. What we say reveals a lot about who we are on the inside. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And as our hearts are being changed, as our mind is being transformed by the truth of God's Word, we will find ourselves speaking far less out of that unregenerate part of our heart. Letter D, there is the fruit of contribution. This is what I give. This is a great story in Philippians. Paul had traveled through the region of Macedonia. He was on a missionary journey. He was trying to raise money for his trips And this region that he's speaking to here in Philippi is one of the poorest regions that there is. They are below poor. They are scraping from one day to the next. And here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica... You sent a gift more than once for my needs. And here's the key. Not that I seek the gift itself. Paul wasn't interested about getting the money. But I seek the profit or the fruit which increases to your account. What Paul is saying is your desire to give, your commitment to give, to support this journey of sharing the gospel all around the world is an indication of the fruit being born in your life spiritually and your willingness to give. One of the poorest regions that Paul had been through gave more than once out of their poverty because of the work that God had been doing in their hearts. you remember the... Uh, the... the um, the parable of the Pharisee and, and, and the, the publican and the widow. And the Pharisees were dropping their money into the plate, making a loud noise, lots of banging and clanging, when everybody was seeing here what they were doing. And Jesus commended the widow who gave the little two pennies, far less than the Pharisees did, because it came from a heart of love and worship of the Lord. So there's a fruit of contribution in what I give, not just materially, but in our time. Your time is the great commodity of our era. We are to give ourselves to Him. It is the fruit of contribution. Letter E, there's the fruit of conversion, and this is who I win to the Lord. Romans 1.13, Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. 
so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Bearing fruit isn't just about who we are and what we do and what we say and how we give. It's in who we win. We are to share the gospel with people around us. We are to seek an opportunity to develop into our relationships a conversation about this great God that has saved us. It shouldn't be an incidental or perhaps an accidental occurrence. But we should be prayerfully thinking about the appointments that God brings into our lives so we can tell them about who God is and what He has done. Well, God is pleased when our lives bear fruit from Him. And this is the first example of what Paul describes as a worthy life. Number two, there's a life that is growing. Verse 10 continues, increasing in the knowledge of God. It pleases God when you and I are growing to completeness in our understanding of who He is. Not factually, not academically, but relationally. When we are spending time in His Word because we find God in that truth and it makes a difference in our lives, it draws us to worship Him. God is pleased when that is happening. Wherever we are in our relationship with God, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter how short a time we've been a Christian, there is always room to grow. Always. Because we won't stop growing until He takes us home and our life in this world is over. Here's a challenge that I have for all of us in God's Word. This comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. The writer of Hebrews says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The writer of Hebrews is looking at this group that he is talking to, and he's basically saying, you guys have not been growing for so long. You should be able to teach others the commandments of God, the law of God. But you yourselves have to continually be fed the elementary milk of the Word. Why? Because they're not in it. They're not reading it. They're not studying it. They're not committing to it. Every church I've ever been in has always had a shortage of teachers. Always. Staff and leaders have to beg people to serve. Can't you just do it? I know it's a year. It's a long time. Well, not even a year. Let's do six months. Well, we can't even get Three months. Can you do three months? And we'll give you a year off. Will you do that? And then they pray Johnny and Mary and Susie. And these are the five-year-olds. They don't have a Sunday school teacher this year. And we don't know what's going to happen. Somebody's got to teach these kids. Will you do it? That's what you've got to do. God says we should be teaching others. Now, if you're a new Christian, obviously you're not ready to do that. But most of us have been Christians far long enough to be able to share the truth of God with other people in a formal way. You know, if you were to have a baby and that baby didn't grow, well, you'd like being able to carry it around, right? They're so cute and so they smell so good all the time. But if that baby didn't grow, didn't put on weight, and you took him to the pediatrician and say, you know, something's wrong. Your baby's not growing. That'd be an alarm, wouldn't it? That's how it is for us spiritually. We're not supposed to be babies. 
in need of the milk. We're to grow up to be men and women of God who desire to share the truth with other people. Well, number three, the third example of this worthy life is a life that is spiritually strong. Verse 11 reads, Strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. There's a triple play here in verse 11 when you talk about the strength and the power and the might of God. Now, you and I do not possess any power in and of ourselves. We don't have spiritual strength apart from the empowerment that comes from our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. You and I just don't naturally possess spiritual strength in our lives. We have to receive, we have to appropriate what God has made available to us. Now, it's not in a box, it's not in a book, it's in your relationship with God. When we spend time in His Word, when we spend time in prayer, when our lives are directed by Him and for Him, we are going to gain a natural strength that comes from that relationship. When we are being tempted and we're being deceived and we're being crushed by our trials, where does our strength come from? Is it in the hope that this is temporary and one day it's just going to pass away? Is it, listen to Dr. Phil and how he taught others to deal with the problems? Where do we get our spiritual strength? We get it from our relationship with God. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. We have the hand of God that leads and guides and sustains us. He is our strength. And from Him, He gives to us His strength. Our strength comes from our relationship with Him. Our empowerment by Him is according to His glorious might. It's not based upon our need. It's based upon His supply. Let me ask you this. How much power does God possess? God has limitless power. He doesn't give based upon our need. He gives based upon His provision. He gives based upon who He is his unending supply, so that we don't get crushed by our burdens, that we don't look for the light at the end of the tunnel, but we stand firm knowing that He is with us, that He walks beside us, that He protects us, and He makes provision for us. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Now let me tell you what that does not mean. I guarantee you that God could not strengthen me to go run a marathon tomorrow. Not going to happen. Could he do it? Sure, he could do it. Is that what that verse is talking about? Absolutely not. There are many, many things that you and I are not going to be able to do physically, but there is everything that we have been empowered to do spiritually. This is what it's talking about. God's endless supply of strength enables you and I to do everything he's called us to do and our relationship with Him. You see, when you feel like you're going to buckle under the circumstances, it is His power that keeps you upright. It's not your determination. It's not you being a good old-fashioned American and pulling up your bootstraps. It's the strength of God in your life. And if anything or anyone else gets glory for your strength through difficult times, 
Oh, you're robbing God of His glory. He's the one that sustains us. His power produces two things based upon our passage. The first one is endurance. His power provides endurance. That means seeing it through to the very end. Now, here's what I know about endurance. It doesn't happen fast. It doesn't happen automatically. You know, before I moved here and these two-lane roads were taking your life into your own hands on a bicycle, I spent a lot of time on a bike. I'd spend anywhere from 15 to 20 hours a week cycling. It takes a long time to build up endurance to do a 100-mile bike ride. You just can't go out and do it, right? It takes a long time to build up that endurance. Well, when you talk about your relationship with Christ, He desires to produce endurance, and that comes through difficulty and hardship. Things that you can't handle on your own. The fact is, most things that you and I go through, we would never choose for ourselves. But God in His sovereignty chooses those things so that we will grow and be dependent upon Him and develop endurance to see it through all the way to the very end, to the day He takes us home. His power also produces patience. It is that calm and gentle spirit that doesn't wring the hand and chew the nails and stay awake in bed at night worrying about what's going to happen. It's this calmness knowing that God is in control. I don't like what's going on. I don't know what's going to come out of what's going on, but I know that God is, and God loves, and God will provide. That's the patience that comes in your relationship with Him. It pleases God that His strength enables us to steadfastly endure with great patience, whatever comes into our lives. Last one, number four. The fourth example of this worthy life is a life that is thankful. Verse 12, joyously giving thanks to the Father. So letter A, there is thankfulness for our circumstances. Yes, I actually said that. Thankfulness for our circumstances. That's what God's Word says. We're to be thankful in all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You mean even the bad stuff? Yep. Even the hard stuff? Yep. Even the stuff that's going to give you an ulcer? Yep. Give thanks to God because it creates dependency upon Him. It then displays the faithfulness of God in your life, relationally, that you can get through whatever it is that comes your way. Philippians 4.6 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, let me ask you, is it easy to be thankful in your circumstances? No, it is not. Is it natural to be thankful in your circumstances? No, it is not. Spiritually, can you be thankful in your circumstances? Yes, you can. According to the glory of His might, His endless supply. Let be not only thankful for our circumstances, but thankfulness for His work. 
Verse 12 continues, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We are able to share in the inheritance of the saints because he has qualified us. To qualify, uh, to qualify us means to make you competent. You are spiritually incompetent outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ in your life. Nothing we can do to become competent. No amount of knowledge, no amount of service, no amount of money given, no amount of anything we could do will make us competent other than the fact that He has qualified us and made us competent by saving us from our sin. Verse 13, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You and I walked as enemies of God, shaking our fists at God, alienated from God, dominated by the dark forces of this world, and yet Jesus, at the moment of our salvation, picked us up and transferred us into the kingdom of His light for all eternity. You can't do that for yourself. I can't do that for myself. But He has qualified us, and He has done that on our behalf, and He has forgiven us. Verse 14, "...in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." What was redeemed for us? How did this redemption take place? Well, it took place on the cross. Through Christ alone, by Christ alone, in Christ alone, we have been made competent to be transferred into the the domain of His kingdom and have been forgiven of our sins. Can you be thankful for that? Can you be thankful for that regardless of the circumstances that you find yourselves in? We should. And that's what we have to focus on when life is crushing us. It's who He is and what He has done on our behalf. It's a great passage of Scripture to think about 2019 and what our spiritual priorities are going to be. If we haven't said any, then we're not going to have any. Maybe it's read through your Bible in a year. Maybe it's to read through the Gospels three or four times. Maybe it's to read through the New Testament. Maybe it's to memorize 50 new verses, whatever it is. Let that be a gateway to deepening your relationship with God so that you can give thanks to Him on all things. Let's pray. Father, You are glorious. You are holy. You are righteous. You are majestic. You are the epitome of what it means to be splendid. God, You are just beyond our ability to define and describe with great accuracy and completeness who you are. God, that you would come to this world that you created to send your one and only Son to die in our place, to redeem us back to yourself, is just overwhelming. Father, I pray that as we think on that, as we give time to meditate on that truth, that it would drive spiritual priorities into our lives this year, that we would not be content with what was, but we would seek to grow and to serve and to love you. God, help us through your spirit that dwells within us to do all that you've called us to do this year as your children, individually and corporately. We give you thanks that you'll be there when we fail. And when we fall, we thank you that your loving arms will cleanse us and send us on our way to continue the journey. 
God, produce endurance in each of us. Create greater patience for the process. Thank you for understanding on the way. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.